everybody. Welcome to this week's episode of That Scale RC Show. Thank you for joining us for episode 47. I am one of your hosts, Travis, along with Jeremy and Adam. And tonight, what do we have planned for tonight? No official guest? Do we have an official guest tonight? Maybe we'll call up a friend later? Yeah, we've got our intern. We're going to introduce our intern to everyone. Ah, yes. So this is a special episode because you guys get to meet the long-awaited intern of that Scale RC show. So in a little bit, we'll reveal that. But first, what's everyone up to? Adam's building stuff and learning about sensor wires. Yeah, pretty much. Uh, basically, I've been uh, all my focus has been on the SCX-10.3. Um, if you've been following anything I've posted, uh, my goal was to put straight axles underneath it. I, I know based on the instructions that Axial plans to release some at some point, but I'm impatient and I like a challenge sometimes. So I said, all right, let's uh, see if I can get something in there. So um, I successful, I think I successfully got the SSD Trail King housings underneath there. Um, there were two areas that had to be modified. Um, the upper front link had to be modified, and the panhard bar had to be modified. Basically, I had to rebuild a new one that was longer um, that still retained the same shape because if you have an SCX-10.3, you'll notice that the panhard bar, when it compresses, there's a little cutout in the scale, or, yeah, I guess the scale oil pan. So it's like a little Z-shape kind of thing. So you have to re-mimic the bar to fit right back up in there. I just need it to be longer because the mount on the axle was about almost three-quarters of an inch longer or farther away than I guess where it is on the um, portal axle that comes with the SCX-10.3. And then the tie rod had to be um, constructed because, or just use a SCX-10.3 two tie rod because that axle is loosely based off of the SEX 10-2. Um, so I just wanted everything to match, so I got stainless 316 uh, rod, tapped it, and made my own. Um, what else? Finally got the electronics in today. And you, you went brushless, right? Yes, brushless. Um, being that I'm a Holmes Hobbies driver, I went with the Holmes Hobbies Trailmaster uh, 2700 because I was waiting for the Polar Pro, but um, I'm not sure when the V2 is coming out and everybody else is sold out of the regular one. So I said, I'll just go with the Trailmaster. It's available and I want to get this thing up and running. And I had good luck with the Trailmaster in my uh, black and gold JK. So I said, we'll just go with that. And then I got the Mamba X. And apparently, the brand new Mamba X sensor wire was bad out of the box because the motor was doing all kinds of weird cogging and sounding like a diesel with a very bad tune. And um, being, you know, rather green to the brushless uh, side of the hobby, I didn't know what was going on. So I sent a video to John Holmes. He said, sensor wire. So installed a new sensor wire and purrs like a kitten nice uh, so yeah so other than that um the car's pretty much 
ready. I, well, after the show, I'm going to finish putting the transmission back into the car for like the sixth time. And, um, yeah, it should be ready to get an actual real test drive. Um, I also got the light kit in there from Lit LED. That one's actually a pretty cool and fairly easy light kit to install because it all goes into the stock location. And he actually includes a, um, I guess, a power plug. It, um, it plugs into your um, balance port on your battery, and that powers up the light kit. So, now, is this a total light kit or just rocks? Just rock lights. Rock lights, headlights, taillights. Oh, everything. That's cool. So, and then he actually gives you a JST plug. So you can actually unplug – well, when you take the body off, you can separate the two because obviously all the lights in the body are running you know, their own series of wires, and then the rock lights are on their own you know, another set, and since they separate, um, he gives you a JST plug so you can unplug it. Uh, the only thing I added into the system was some um, – what's I was PowerShift RC. Uh, I guess he calls them rock pods. But I used them for the, you know, the A-pillar lights or the hood lights that you'd put on a real Jeep. Which they're like the perfect size. Those things are scaled great for the size of that rig. They are. And the funny thing is he's actually got a handful of different style of lights on his website. So like if you go um, to his website or even if you go on A-Main and look up the PowerShift technology stuff that they sell – he actually has a set of pods that are labeled um, hood lights. And the funny thing is, uh, when you look at them, instead of being one, like, cause I don't know how to explain this. Like, the one I got has one LED diode that you can see. And he has another one that's called hood lights. And that where that diode is, there's actually six mini little diodes. Those so are the ones that I had, that yeah. They might be brighter. I don't know. but They're, oh, my like God, them. bright. Okay, so that must be the difference because yeah. I just didn't like the look of them because I just like when they're off. I just was like, I don't really want to look at that. It just kind of looks, you know, not scale to me. So I was sure. like, eh. so anyways, I I was searching through his pods and they had those ones. So I said, okay, I'm gonna give these a shot. He calls them rock pods because I guess he expects you to put them on like your chassis or underneath the car for rock lights because they come in a set of four. So that was a set of four for 20 bucks, or you could have got the hood lights that I was just talking about for 20 bucks. So I said, four is better than two for the same price, so let's just give it a shot. So, nice. yeah, that was about it. So I found a spot as close as I can get to the windshield. Um, you know, drilled a little hole, drilled a hole for the wire really close to it, so that way the wire can go right down so you don't have wires dangling all over the place. And, yeah, I think it looks pretty good. Do you actually use a drill to do holes, or do you use a body reamer? I use a body reamer. Oh, okay. I'm almost yeah. over body reamers just all together, and I've been thinking about just starting to drill stuff. Well, I used to actually use drill bits, but the problem is um, unless you get everything perfect, my, my mistake I had one time was when I first got into the hobby and I didn't use a body reamer, I used to think, oh, I'll just drill with the drill bit. Well, if the drill bit walks on you, then your hole's screwed up to begin with because now it's like off-center or it's not where it needs to be, and then you have to right. make it a little bigger. Um, and I found that issue with a couple body posts. And mind you, this was like almost 10 years ago now. 
Um, so after that, I switched over to the body reamer. And the thing I like about the body reamer is, for instance, like these lights, because the, I guess the mounting area that he provides for you is so small, I used, I want to say like an M2 screw, something hmm. like that. It was like, it's really tiny. It's, it's kind of like the ones that come with the VP light bars and stuff. Right, um, okay. And what I ended up doing was just making a small hole, and I just kept testing till that fit perfectly, almost like I was threading it through the plastic because since they're so small and the heads on that is so small, I didn't want to go too big of a hole, and then the light can, you know, potentially or potentially pull the head through the body. Mm. So I wanted to, like, you know, fit perfectly. So that's kind of why I like the body reamer. It makes life a little bit easier. Um, the other thing I got done today, too, which I haven't shared any photos on, is I ditched the factory um, tires. Oh, you did. Oh, you did. Yes, I. So I know part of it has to do with the fact that I'm not running portals, but my problem I was having was at the ride height I was at when the tire completely stuffed, like or when the suspension completely stuffed all the way up, and you went to turn the wheel, you were taking out like the whole corner of your fender like it was like like if the fender wasn't there it wanted to take out the body like I was like man I said that is, wow. I said, that just doesn't make sense but then I said you know what the portals probably give you an extra quarter inch of clearance so I said there's pro that's probably part of my reason um, so I do got to give Axial some really good praise on the fact that everything they have on this kit is like the tolerances like couldn't be any more perfect because, like I said, the Panhard bar, like, perfectly fits up in the little cutout that they have. So somebody, you know, they had to design all that. The, um, the Panhard mount is, like, there's no way you can move it any closer, like, underneath the car because you'd be hitting the steering servo horn. And the tolerances with that are so tight that you can't use an aftermarket, well, I haven't seen an aftermarket one that'll work. You have to use an axial-provided uh, servo arm because the aftermarket one's kind of like, I mean, I don't know, maybe that Vanquish one might work, but like the Robotronics ones won't work because the base is so fat that it'll contact the Panhard bar or the Panhard mount. Oh, dang. Okay. So, and it just clears underneath the, the chassis. So, I mean, those tolerances are so tight, like, they really did their homework and got everything working. So, like, it's meant to work that way. And I know we've always advocated on this show that, you know, there's some there, – these companies are paying money to have people engineer this stuff and come up with it. Don't try and be smarter than the engineer and recreate the wheel. And I know I've pretty much done that with this. But mine was more to just – see if I can get something else to work. Because in theory, like I think we talked about it on the show, in theory, the SCX-102 axles, you'd think would just go right underneath. They changed enough mounts on some stuff that the rear you have no issue. The rear goes in no problem. It's the front that has all the issues. So I was thinking about, which maybe I'll do on our channel, um, on our YouTube channel is doing a video kind of like showing you what I did and 
kind of like what you need to do if you want to make it work. So it's kind of like a how-to, and you can follow along. Um, but yeah, uh, like I said, the last piece of the puzzle really for me was those tires. After looking at those photos I took earlier in the week, I just I couldn't I couldn't handle those um, those tires. They just look so wide. I was like, they're not stock. They just do, are not stock. They're not scaled. They just don't look scaled to me. So I went with the same tires. I went with the Axial uh, Nittos, the R35 Compound, but the original ones they came out with. So I have those underneath the car right now, and they just look perfect. They're, like, right at home. And now all I have to do is come up with some sort of a bump stop because at the last, I want to say, eighth inch of shock travel, once you get to that last eighth inch and it it'll hit when you turn just barely it'll just kiss it so I want to make some sort of a bump stop to keep it from doing that and I think it's gold I think the Jeep will be ready to roll dude those were yeah, those the first ones that they had oh do you guys hear that feedback yeah I do huh now it's gone weird okay anyways those original nittos that Axial has those were so rad I want to say they're like a 4.6 or 4.65 but they're, they're 4. like 4.7 okay i don't for whatever reason they look way smaller than 4.75s but like as far as like the perfect size tire for almost every rig those nittos look at home on almost anything like they're just such a perfect size and that was kind of something that bummed me out when they put like the xl sized tires on the scx 10 3 because they're just you know it's like kind of like how big Traxxas's tires are on their TRX4s and stuff. Like, they're just massive, you know? And I don't know. I just... I wish that there was another choice besides 4.75 for the most part, you know? I mean, I know, like, RC four-wheel drive has, like, a whole slew of different sizes and stuff, but for whatever reason, I just could never really get their compound to work super well up here. Like, it was just kind of too hard. And so that... You know, it's like, yeah, they look rad, and they have lots of them that look really cool, but they don't really work all that great up here. So, you know, with being a Proline guy, you know, I've got like a 4.35 and the 4.75s to choose from other than like really small swampers and stuff. But like the swampers look good, but there's just a lot of builds that you just super swampers don't look good on. You know, like they're kind of for a select type of vehicle you know like a purpose-built rig not really something that would be driven on the street like they just look out of place yeah i get what you're saying um and it's funny that it's like the 4.75 became the like standard somehow i don't know how that came to be but like after proline came out with the, the swamper xl and that was the 4.75 tire it's like that was like the go-to size. Everybody had to have that. I know Pitbull came out with their Rock Beast 2 XLs were the same thing. They were the 4.75. Um, I think since then, um, Proline has released a handful of more tires that are at that 4.75 size. So I'm not quite sure where that you know became like the rule it, of thumb. Yeah, like it's yeah. almost like industry standard. Like who, like how does that get decided is what I want to know. Cause, cause everybody did it then, you know, like as soon as they came out with it, all of a sudden it was everybody. Cause I forgot about that. Like Pitbull, their rock beast, it works okay up here, but 
I did like the sizes that Pitbull had. They had a lot of cool tires that were narrow and stuff. And like one of my favorite tires of all time, I just gave them to Trav actually for his build or the BFG all-terrain pro lines. And they're a 4.35, but they're, they're fairly narrow still, you know, they're maybe an inch wide, dude, it's such a good looking tire, but there's a lot of situations where the all-terrain tread isn't going to work super hot in this area. Like on a dry, hot day, where you know like where we normally go all those little sipes and stuff in the all-terrain oh my god they work so good but the minute you're driving in the wet they just spin and spin and spin and then they plug up with mud really easy because the spacing is so small but they do look super scale i mean they're they look like a a real one that's been shrunk down whereas i mean like if you look at the real trail grapplers and then like the axial trail grapplers Axial made the spacing between the lugs a little bit bigger just so that they'll perform better in a variety of situations, you know? I mean, they they have to make them work. You can't just... I mean, not everything translates over from one-to-one, including, you know, the tread block spacing and stuff on tires. But, like, they, they got really, really close, you know, as close as they could without having to, you know, make them look really, really different. Yeah, exactly. And... Um, but I think what they did with this next one is um, they oh, hold on one second. They actually like they made it a lot bigger, and yeah, that was where I think they lost it. Well, you know, one thing that is good about going to four point seven five though is you have a lot of foam selections to choose from. You know, once you get into that XL size, there's all kinds of different foams that you can run. So that that part's kind of cool. Like, I get that. And from, like, a tuning standpoint on, like, a comp-style truck or something, you know, that's 4.75's rad. I mean, if on, like, a Class 2, like, comp-style vehicle, I mean, I wouldn't run anything other than an XL size just because, you know, you need it to perform as well, too. So, I don't know. It's It's weird, you know? It's like this will kind of tie into our topic later, but it's just like one of the things that I've noticed with, especially with RC, whenever you start messing with how stuff is engineered and things like that, um, you'll gain in one area, but you'll lose somewhere else. Like there's always a trade off with every change that you make I found. And so it's like, you got to really be calculated about what you're going to change on these cars. Exactly. And that's kind of like what, I found out firsthand messing with the SCX 10.3 was, um, you know, I wanted to do something that, I mean, yes, they are intending to go this route and they are going to manufacture something that'll be a direct drop in. So that way you don't have to do what I'm doing, but I've said it over and over again. I'm just not a fan of portals unless it's a portal based rig like military, um, you know, like your rock buggy, something that, you know, would have portals on it. So I wanted to make something work. So I kind of just had to take a shot in the dark and go, um, you know, like actually you recommended, you said, oh, what about the SSD Trail King? Because it's an axial-based, you know, axle. Um, It shouldn't be that much different. It should work. But, like, I mean, I I don't know when that AR-45, the straight one's supposed to come out. But, like, honestly, I mean, what you did, like, you know how we're talking about like, you know, don't try and reinvent the wheel and try and like out engineer the people that are paid to do this stuff. But like with what you did, 
personally, like, I feel like that's an awesome modification to make. You know, it's like you just made that thing look even more realistic. The lights up on the hood, the A-pillar lights, those look fantastic. Like, it, it just, you've put together a really balanced-looking truck. Like, it just, you've done a great job on it, and it's been really fun to see you, you know, putting this thing together and stuff and, like, doing your own decal work on it and stuff because when you did the stencils and stuff, that turned out phenomenal. But, like the SSD ones that you chose are just, dude, they look so good. Like it's such a good looking axle and it's just perfect for that rig. Well, yeah. And then also the other thing I love about the SSD axles, especially those ones is they're really were not that expensive. I think it was $89 total for the front and rear. And the majority of that price goes into the front axle, but the beauty is their kit comes with, well, minus the gears, their kit comes with everything you need to make those offset axles work. They come with offset axle shafts. They come with the offset tubes. They come with metal knuckles or C-hubs. You have to provide your own knuckles. Right now, mine are plastic because nobody seems to have the black Vanquish um, scale knuckles in stock. Mm. Um, they, I've seen the orange ones available, which I was very close to ordering, but their orange isn't like reed racing orange so i'd end up having to like paint it or something um so on this one i think i'm just gonna go with black just because it all disappears um i know i did spray paint my knuckles underneath the black and gold cheap uh orange to look like reed knuckles which i may end up doing on this i don't know yet but um those axles like i said it was it was fairly inexpensive whereas you know and i'm not this is not a negative comment. I'm just saying Vanquish makes a very scale-looking metal axle, but you're going to pay for that. So I just didn't want to have to pay twice as much to get those. Sure. But, you know, you're, what you said about their steering knuckles, dude, like, honestly, I feel like Vanquish's steering knuckles are kind of the unhung... Or, <laughs> sorry, butchered that. The unsung hero of their product line. Like, they look so good and so realistic, especially the way that the top, you know, how it's a double shear for the steering rod. Um, The way that top piece mounts on with the four screws and everything, like, I mean, dude, they're just, they're beautiful. They look like the real thing. I was watching, what's, who's the dude that announces on King of the Hammers that is like the guy, Guy Ferrari or whatever his name is, um... He's got that haircut and like the big lamb chop sideburns. He's like, he's like the guy for what is that dude's name, Trav? So I don't keep butchering it. Guy Fury. Guy Fury. So he announces at King of the Hammers, and he's like the Guy Fury of the off-road world. Like he's got gel spiked up hair and big lamb chop sideburns and stuff. Hi, Johnson. Or hi, Jonathan. Ian Johnson. Maybe that's who it is. Kind of a heavy set dude. Yeah. He was yeah. on. He was on. Um, he had the show Extreme Four by Four. That's now what I on, was watching. Yeah. Yeah. Now he's on Four Wheeler on Motor Trend, and he also does Big Tire Garage. Okay, so I was watching the Extreme Off Road one, his show or whatever, where they did the uh, WD40 themed uh, Jeep YJ build. Mm-hmm. 
Did you ever see that one? Have you followed that show? I see. I, I don't really watch much like automotive television aside from like racing and stuff like that. But I just for the hell of it, I was bored one night and it was on Amazon. So I watched him build this Jeep and with this just sick aluminum tub body, like it was a unibody, but it was all done out of aluminum. And I guess the thing weighed less than 200 pounds. Like, dude, they did a beautiful job on that thing. But I was watching and when he was putting the axles together, he used some awesome awesome air lockers in it and just a bunch of really cool stuff but when it got time for him to put the knuckles and stuff on dude it, the vanquished ones looked exactly like what he used like they're just dead on they look so good and i just i don't know it's it's funny because it's not a super visible part on an rc car obviously but after seeing how detailed those are because i have a set on our curry jeep the one that's got rock jocks under it and uh dude, they're just a beautiful piece and they look like the real thing. Like it just, it, after watching that show, it made me just kind of get a whole new appreciation for how realistic some of their stuff looks. And like those knuckles are just rad. And I, I don't know. I'm surprised I don't see them on more people's rigs, but I get it. I mean, they're kind of spendy and you don't really see them. So, but I mean, man, they are just so scale looking. They look fantastic. Well, that's what I was going to say about, like, their actual axles, too. I mean, if you actually look at the detail work they put on their, you know, curry axles, they have little mimic, you know, welds on. Yeah. Isn't that nuts? And, and, like, it's those little things that get you going when you're really into that kind of look. Like, when you're like, oh, I want this thing to look super real, you know. So, you know, you can, like I said, you get what you pay for, for the most part. Like, if you're going to spend that kind of money, you're getting you know, an aluminum product, um, and the detail is going to be, you know, bar none. I mean, because I haven't really seen anybody try to create any kind of, like, a weld, you know, in plastic. I mean, I've seen, like, some of the injection molded stuff. Like, you can see, like, bolts and stuff. Like, mm -hmm. I know Axial started doing that on some of the bumper mounts. Like, it looked like there was, like, bolts and stuff, so it was a little more realistic looking. But, like, as far as, like, excuse me, axles go, you've, I've never seen anything in the plastic that looks that real. Yeah, no, yeah. I agree. So, yeah, so I mean, I, that's why I went that route. Um, it, yeah, and it's, and it's working out. I mean, I'm happy with it. Um, it's not like I was trying to recreate the wheel a hundred percent. So, I mean, it's like, I, I thought these would work. Um, it does kind of show you that they did take a lot of the stuff into consideration like when I held the front um, portal axle up to the, S the SSD axle, the upper uh, link mount is way, uh, it's way farther to the, it's closer, is it, yeah, it's closer to the driver's side of hmm. the, I believe. Yeah, it's more centered, or no. Well, I'm trying to think about this because like, I don't have the car in front of me. You know, no. while you're doing that, I'm going to ring up our intern because I don't want to leave him hanging okay. too much longer. Okay. Um, real quick, yeah, I'll just I'll cut to the chase. The, um, the mount is closer, I think, to the outside of the axle. So basically they have a very almost straight or parallel um, upper link, whereas the SSD is supposed to go on top of the pumpkin, so it's way farther over. And that's why you have to get creative with it. Oh, so it doesn't actually mount towards the center of the axle, then. It's off to one side, too. 
Uh, yeah, it's more on top of the pumpkin, Weird. which is under the driver's side. Whereas yep. on the axial one, they put it closer to where the pan hard mount would be, so you're you don't need like a crazy offset, you know, uh, link mount. Which is right. basically what I had to do. Is I actually, you know, luckily I did the rear steer on the Capra, so I ordered uh, factory rod ends for the Capra, so all my links would match, and I had a bunch of leftover from that kit, and there were some offset, you know, I think they're like 35-degree-ish, 22-degree-ish bend um, rod ends, and that's what I needed just to get it to get out of that bind, and everything worked after that. Dude, I'm so happy they decided to go with that TLR formula plastic on their rod ends because they used to blow out so fast. I mean, just get destroyed and like the low C rod ends, like most of the rod ends on racing cars, especially when they're gray, um, whatever that gray plastic is just holds up super good. Like the associated ones are that way too. And that's like something that trips me out with all these guys on the element pages talking about how crappy the links and the rod ends are and stuff. It's like, I haven't had one of them pull through or anything like that plastic is really, really good. And that's what we're used to having on race cars. And we, I mean, I don't know. I mean, aside from like the HB cars, Trav, I mean, you don't see too many ball ends pop off anymore, you know, especially on the associateds, it seems like. Well, yeah. I mean, it's, it's one of those things. I, I think what people need to remember as well is that stuff like that is a wear part. Those are yeah. parts you do need to replace at some point because they wear out. I understand that like the, the tolerances aren't going to be super tight, maybe from day one, because like it's not a one to one. They don't need to be. But those parts do wear out. And it's nice that Axial made that transition to a higher quality rod end. And those are, you know, little things like that are kind of the the beneficiaries of being bought by Horizon because Horizon has a little bit more, um, they have a little bit more resources as far as like little parts here and there and different plastic formulas, things like that. Those are the things that people don't really think about when when new projects come out or a company gets bought, things like that. So... Yeah, good for Axial and good for Horizon for actually investing in things like that, that you know, to make those parts worthwhile. Yeah, and not yeah. jacking the price of the kits up either. You know, it's like you're getting better stuff for what you would have paid for it too. Well, right. Yeah. right. And back to like the, the funny thing you, you were talking about, Ian Johnson, um, in his show, I was actually watching his, his recent four-wheeler on Motor Trend this past weekend, and he actually had a Samurai in the shop and he was going, basically showing you how, like, you need to inspect everything, like, every so many years to make sure everything's working right, because you don't want to be out on the trail and have a catastrophic failure. And it was funny because, you know, we're talking about a scale car, but in the same sense, you know, like Travis said, that's a wear item. It is, he was saying the same thing with the rod ends on a real car. He says oh, yeah. those rod ends aren't designed to last forever. So, you know, you try to take care of them as long as you can, but everyone, you know, but after so many years and so many hard, you know, harsh trail rides, eventually you're going to be grinding away at the metal, uh, well, in the one-to-one -one world. On the scale world, the plastic is going to start fatiguing, it's going to bend, it's going to, you know, it's just going to shift, so you're going to have some, some wiggle room. The that thing that I thought oh, sorry. was Go pretty ahead. crazy about, the, about this kit was you had to almost pry open where the rod ends were going to get them go in because they made the tolerances so tight so they'd be like tight from to begin with because I know like my SCX 10 2 
when I first um, put it together, I built the whole car, and I think after like four serious runs back when it was the XJ, mm-hmm. uh, by the time I switched over to the black Jeep, you'd pick that thing up, you could shake it back and forth, and you could watch the axles go back, like wobble back and forth just because the, the rod ends were so wore out. Right. Yeah, it doesn't take anything. Like I, when we were racing, I had, uh, I, it, it was a poor decision looking back. But for a long time, I raced four wheel short course, and dude, I'm not kidding. The balls in the ends would blow out so fast on the low C four wheel short course because I had a, a TLR ten. It was the ten two point oh, and uh, yeah, it, it, dude, like you would get two, maybe three races out of it, and you'd have to buy all new ball ends and all new balls. They used a hard anodized ball, and dude, the aluminum would even wear down so quick that you could slip the plastic over it. Well, like, it's kind you, of funny because it, this is how most of the eight scale blade, eight scale base, excuse me, platforms were like. It, like in the earlier part of the decade, the plastic quality for things like links and ball ends and things like that, like they were substantially less you know of a lesser quality than they are now and it's kind of funny you know if we fast forward you know almost 10 years like there were only very few brands in the eight scale world at that time that like actually had decent build and wear quality like kyosho was one of the only ones yeah. and and now we have these cars that come out where you know we have all these things that basically come directly on them and eight scale like we've completely eliminated that issue like it's just it's a non-issue anymore yeah. Honestly, all people need to do now, uh, at least in elements, right? They just need to put metal balls on the end of the links and call it good, and they should last you a, a long time. They will wear out, but I mean, it's God, we've come so far. Yeah, that silver material is really, really good, and that's well, yeah, why I don't understand. It's a, it's a it's a hard plastic, and it's you know, it, especially these days. I mean, it's it's not like it's that much more to manufacture that kind of plastic, especially if this is something like low C or associated this was something they were already used to they already had parts made from this material in a certain vendor so it's not like it's a new thing for them yeah they can finally adopt these platforms and apply it to them you know what's funny i mean i i've only had a handful of failures with a scale car you know with a scale crawler and i've broken axial links the rod ends um, they, cause they've worn out and they just break. My 10 two does that for some reason. It likes to, uh, eat up the top, the, the rod end that attaches to the top of the axle on the rock jocks on the front axle. So for whatever reason, that one wears out and breaks a lot, but like, I've never broken anything on one of these where I like get angry and take it to Facebook and complain about the links or complain about the ball ends and stuff like I don't know if it's because with us coming from racing and everything that like we have a better grasp maybe that things wear out and things will break, you know? And so I don't have a hissy fit over it when it happens. It, like, yeah, it's, it's just a different no perspective. Like, I mean, people, I don't, it's hard because you can't reasonably expect somebody that, that is getting into the hobby that, you know, let's say bought an SCX for their first car and has been in the hobby for two or three, even even two or three years now, and bought an element or any other kind of crawler. I mean, this this applies to them all. And, you know, you can't really expect them to really grasp that concept of, well, things wear out. Things aren't necessarily 
you know, built to stay this way forever. You know, in their mind, these parts, these replacement parts only exist if they break. Wear is kind of a foreign concept. So it, for, for us, like, we're, we're fortunate, I guess, because we came from a wear-intensive world. You know, I mean, I, we're still in that. Well, dude, um, I mean, we replace aluminum chassis, you know, like yeah, we don't I mean, freak out when we've ground a chassis down to, you know, just yeah. a couple so, like, millimeters. I get it. Like, you know, it, it obviously it's frustrating, like for us when we see comments like that, but because we, you know, for us, it's like it for us, it comes across as silly, but it does. You're right. For them, I, I also get that perspective because they they have not had those experiences as of yet. Now it's kind of a different story. Like if it's someone like Adam who maybe never did racing but has been doing crawling for ten years, and then he's you know he, then then you know. Well, right? yeah, yeah. Adam's kind of have like seen a one, it all, one, one background, right? So there's just there's a lot of there's a lot of very you know varying in the demographic. So that that's where a lot of this comes from, and and. That's that's hard for a company like Associated or or Horizon or SSD even, you know stuff like that. They they see those things and it's like, well, it's kind of a half and half of should we address this or do we just take it on the chin because they don't properly understand, you know? Like it's a mixture, you know. Right, so, and that would be hard. I mean, it's not it's probably not very fun for them to be put in that position because they can't just tell the customer like, dude, you're being stupid. Like what you're saying is unreasonable. You know, they they can't say stuff like that. And I don't know. It's, it's just weird. Like it's really strange. And I've seen this a lot with element group because I think it has attracted a lot of new guys or a lot of racers that have come over because they were associated fans. And you see these guys having these fits over just nothing, you know? And like, well, I be, can't believe I bought a $300 truck and this is broken or this wore yeah, out. Yeah, but you it know? wasn't really different for axial releases before. I think we're noticing it now more because I think you and I, by default, just we gravitate more towards element-oriented social media. Like, it, true, before true. element was around, you know, it was kind of axial everything. And, and axial couldn't put a post out at any point about anything without someone getting on there and griping about whatever the case may be, whether it was a something in the condition of their builds or that they just weren't releasing something that they, they liked. You know, so I, I think maybe we've forgotten that a little bit now that Element is, you know, kind of our, our forefront. But that is that I mean that, that was the companies can't win in these scenarios, right? No. It's 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 a it's a it's a causality of the climate. Right, it's 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 just how it, it it's. There's nothing you can do to avoid it, but they know that. You know, I think these companies know that, and I think that that's kind of why, in in, so, in many ways, you don't see things like this addressed because at the end of the day, there really isn't anything to address. You know, they're gonna make they're gonna make their decisions, and and you know, the the majority of the market is going to gravitate and appreciate those decisions. It's you know, there, there is such thing as silent majority, and I think we see that a lot, especially in response to kit manufacturers in the crawler world i think that that's a big thing that we see yeah it, it's just weird like it the, the whole reason why i brought it up is because I, I realized one day that i see probably i don't know 20 30 comments about people being mad breaking something on an rc car compared to their car they depend on getting to work and back failing like dude i i don't see anyone post like oh you know cylinders 
you know, lost compression and blah, 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 or I lost a coil, goddammit, you know? Like, I don't see anything like that. Instead, I see all these, like, trivial little things with RC cars, but, like, I never see any griping or bitching about stuff. I think part of that is cost relation, too. I think part of that is cost relation, too, because people, it's, the same can be said for RC cars versus motorcycles. Right? Like, you know, we we have a lot of moto friends, and that's something I almost never see. That's true. Yeah. I mean, nobody bitches about, you know, oh, my stock handlebars bent when I crashed. Yeah. It's like, well, no shit. I mean, it, it, yeah. So I, I think for, for me, I look at this from the angle of that if people buy this thing, there's going, you know, if people bought a, let's say, an SCX 10 3, there are, and like I said, I don't see as much SCX 10 3 media, right? I just don't see that as much anymore. Sure. So let's say somebody bought one of these. If they're impressed with it, like if, if people are impressed with it, there is probably a, a I, I'm going to say maybe close to like 15% of, of, and this is a hunch, but probably 15% of the people who bought it and are satisfied with it are going to make a post about it. However, if you have people who bought that same exact kit and they are upset with something, right? Something, whatever, there was a defect in the kit, it was missing parts and... And which, on that note, you guys got to understand, like every kit, you know, every car that's ever been released is going to miss a part at some point. I mean, my, you know, I've got eight hundred dollar HB kits I built in the past that are mixing are missing, you know, whole drivetrain parts. So it's like it's just it's those are factory causalities. But my point being is that the 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 percentage of people who who get it and have a negative first interaction with it, and like something's missing, something's broken, something is defective out of the gate, or something fails a lot quicker than they think you should. Like we, you know, RTR electronics have been a big subject about that recently. Um, those things tend to be reported on on social media at a much higher rate. So, which is just weird. Doesn't that seem like, like, come on, choose your battles. You know, well, like, I, think- I mean, doesn't that seem weird to you though? I think it's 50% people want it fixed and 50% people want to feel validated in their complaint. That's why they post it to groups. Yeah, I they just... want they want people to come up on there and say, "Yep, I had the same thing." And they you know, for maybe you know, cuz it's it sucks if you get something and it didn't turn out the way that it was supposed to. It's disappointing, it's a bummer, and you know like if nothing else, like even if cost isn't a factor, it adds time if you have to get something replaced. So sure. it, it's probably a, a a crutch in some ways for people if they can post it on a group and have 15 people reply to that saying the same exact thing happened to me. Well, then you're going to feel a lot better about it happening to you. But the thing that gets me about that is it's like it, it, <laughs> in what point of your train of thought approaching something like that, did it make sense to post on Facebook versus – reaching out to customer service like which which is a, a great point and a question that will never be properly answered yeah it just blows my <laughs> mind it's like somebody would be like well did you contact customer service because they'll take care of it no i just wanted to cry about it and feel validated and have people you know pat me on the back and tell me oh it's okay it happened to me too you know it's like i just i don't know i don't understand it i've never been one of those people i don't get it you know like i have i I can't even tell you the last time I saw a post where somebody even said, oh man, my check engine light came on. You know, like I just, I never see stuff like that. And I personally never gripe about stuff or post the problems that I have with something because I don't know, like I would much rather have like a good like rapport with 
companies that I deal with, you know, because as, as somebody pointed out on the DR10 page, they're like, you know, getting on here and slamming it, like there's people that are employees of that company that spend time in these groups and stuff. They're going to see it, you know, and if you're being an a-hole and throwing a fit, how responsive are they, are they going to be to try and make you happy now? You know, are they going to go out of their way and try and make, you know, it's like, man, yeah. this guy, <laughs> I just, I don't understand that train of thought. It's a hobby wide symptom. It really is. Like we've seen, I mean, we see it in racing too, obviously. like I Not think nearly we, as much though. Yes, yes and no. It's in different areas. I think in racing, we see it more on the accessory side, like electronics, not so much cars. Right. right. In, in, in like drag racing or scale, stuff like that. We see that a lot more in the the bigger assemblies. Um, why that is, I, I really couldn't tell you. You know, I, I think it. no one will ever have the answer to why this happens, I think. I mean, there's, there's always going to be theories. I have my own theory, but no one's really going to be able to answer this question. I, it's just it's just the way things are. And unfortunately, it, it means that it, it can be really counterproductive in trying to grow these hobbies sometimes. I mean, that this is... You know, we are our own worst enemies on occasion, and that's you know that that's really that's the only fact I think that anybody really knows in all this. The rest of it, I mean, it's a mystery. I mean, people do weird things. I I think a lot of the weird stuff that happens though is just because they don't have real world experience with stuff. I mean, like the days of buying a car and like tuning the carb just doesn't happen. You know, it's like you have to have a computer, you've got to you know have a code reader and stuff. Like you don't just pop the hood and start monkeying with stuff like you could back in the old days. And so nobody really works on newer cars themselves that often anymore. And so then they buy an RC car kit and they can literally screw with anything, you know, they can change all of it and upgrade this and get rid of that and do some really weird looking stuff. And, you know, back to what I told you guys before we started with that DR 10, you know, the guy that stripped a spur gear Half a pound of brass weight in a drag car, high KV motor, and aluminum short course wheels. And the dude's wondering why he stripped his spur gear out. It's like there's no mechanical inclination anymore. You know, it's like people aren't working on stuff in their garage like their real car. Or, you know, like a small percentage are, you know. It's like there's the Mies, the Adams, the James Eckers, you know, that like work on our stuff, you know, and then there's guys that have a car like you, Trav, for example, where you've never really had to touch a thing on it, you know, and so you don't get that experience of, you know, over torquing something and having the head break off or, you know, you don't have these issues you run into in the automotive world and, you know, they approach an RC car without knowing, you know, things have mechanical limits, you know. Yeah, I which which is a good point to be made. The only other thing I can think of is that maybe people who come into this thinking that it's an RC car and they think off the bat that because it's an RC car they shouldn't have to worry about those things. Yeah. That's the only other thing I can think of. But the I don't thing, know. The thing that got me with the the DR10 that we talked about last week too though was like saying that it's toy quality. Like that blows my mind. It's like, what, what RC cars have you been looking at? You know, like what about this thing feels like toy quality to you? I mean, it, 
I don't see that at all with any of these. I mean, like there is a clear, distinct line between a new bright that you buy at Walmart and a Traxxas or associated RTR that you just bought, you know, like huge quality difference and calling that thing, not hobby grade just blew my mind. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. You know, 10 years ago, that was the hot race car, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It, it was, that thing was a bad, bad dude. Well, I, our intern is here. Hello, intern. Hello, boss. You've been quietly waiting. You bet. I, I maybe I don't, I'm not really your boss. Travis is your immediate supervisor. That's true. You two, true. You two be have been working now. pretty close. So yeah. how how has that been? Him, him kind of taking you under his wing and teaching you stuff, and you actually getting to have some industry involvement now how are you enjoying that it's sweet i was having fun by myself and when Travis brought me on to mess with sr stuff just made it even better that's pretty cool it's not many kids you could do that with that are going to have the attention span that you do or anything like that so that's pretty neat so uh people that aren't familiar um our intern actually does have a name even though he's just referred to as intern his name is <laughs> elliot chapel right did i say Facts. it right yeah. Okay. Elliot Chapel, not Chappelle. It doesn't matter. I know. Yeah. I don't really care either. Honestly, I don't care. I was called Jeremy for probably half of my life instead of Jeremy. So that was part of the reason why I just shortened my name to one letter because evidently, like, syllables trip people up sometimes. So. See, Jeremy. Jeremy. Yeah. It was just, yeah. <laughs> ridiculous. So. If you but anyways, the Rona, I'm going to call you Jeremy. Jeremy. I, I am. Not too germy, though, actually. I've had a pretty strong immune system through all of this, contrary to my name. Um, but yeah, Elliot is 14 years old. When do you turn 15? Uh, I'm actually 15. I turned 15 in March. Oh, that's right. Did I miss your birthday? Some, bum, bum, bum. some boss you are. Dude, did I seriously miss your birthday and not like wish you happy birthday on Facebook? Dude, I don't even know. I don't remember. Well, I'm going to pretend I did because I feel super bad right now all of a sudden. <laughs> you're, you're, you are, despite your age, you are one of our closest friends in the RC hobby. So that makes me feel really, really bad. <laughs> so, um, but, but so we met Elliot uh, winter before this past one that we just finished, uh, met him at the track. My very first experience with Elliot was him offering to let me borrow his radio. So that's got to tell you something right there about this kid. Um, start out in the novice class. We watched you make your way through that. And then this year you bumped up to 21.5 as you should have, which was a great move because now you've got competition and those faster guys are making you faster. And you you had a couple podiums this year? Uh, I don't know. I made one podium this year. But yeah. other than that, I've just been like mid-pack I made. One of those was a TQ. Yeah, That's right. Nice. That Yeah. And I wasn't there for that one, was I? No. no. Dude, of all the ones to miss. I, I saw some really brilliant moments with you on the track. Like you starting to get it and calm down and smooth out and stuff. And I, I remember going up and telling you like, dude, that was one of the best races that I've seen you run. And you, of course, were being a racer and kind of down on yourself about how you had performed. But everybody has those days. It just happens. But uh, 
Yeah, so we've gotten to know Elliot through racing here locally with uh, carpet and turf off-road. And I got to do a... How long was our enduro? Three hours? Yeah, it was a three-hour enduro race. Yeah, so Elliot and I were on the same team along that awesome. with... that Dude, that was a fun night. Like, that, I had, that was the first chance I had gotten to know uh, John Dun-Dun-Dun. And... <laughs> Um, I already Tom. knew, I already knew Brad. We don't see Brad very much anymore, but I remember Brad from the mini eight days, but, uh, yeah. So we got to hang out and drive and talk and learn some stuff and it was a really good time. And so, uh, basically Elliot's been Travenized buddy ever since. And then we decided to sponsor him this year and kind of Travis is taking him under his wing and mentoring him with racing. And that, since that's not really happening right now, um, Travis mentoring him with uh, CAD design stuff. Heck yeah. And like the very first thing I see you crank out is a bed for a Unimog. <laughs> like the right out of the gate. Like, you know, most people are like, oh, I'm going to print a scale ice chest oh, or I'm going to so, print a gas can. <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, to be like perfectly clear, like as far as the CAD stuff, I've, I've hardly been involved in anything he's done like he's pretty much done it completely solo like I, dare i say it like he's learned almost nothing from me so really like, everything that elliot's making and and putting out right now and testing and all that is like a hundred percent him so like well, that's, that's even not, more impressive i have no involvement in anything that's going on like he saves he saves his projects to my project folder for sor so i can see them but i I don't comment on them. I don't mess with them or anything like that. Is all his deal. To be that clear, that's really just because cool. I'm not competent enough to save it to a different folder. <laughs> <laughs> Fusion, well, Fusion is a little tricky in that regard. Yeah. But it's cool though because now you guys have like this shared resource that you can go back and forth, and Trav can look at what you've done and actually manipulate it and be like, "Hey, if we do this, this will take care of that problem." And so, I mean, that, that's actually really cool. I think it's a smart idea that you guys are doing, like, a shared folder for the projects and stuff. Yeah. No, it's, it's, it's been pretty cool, and, and I was able to kind of walk him through the the pipeline for everything that's, you know, coming out for SOR, and, well, some stuff now is out. But um, it's been cool to be able to, like, kind of talk to him about those things and, and – you know, he and I haven't had too many conversations about it, but like I want to involve him a lot more in those projects because one, it's good experience for him, but two, I also need the help. And he's proven that he's very skilled in what he's doing and is plenty patient. So because of that, it's like, well, you know, I, I this is this is a resource on both ends that we can benefit from and you know, that's that that's you know, a big part of it too. I, I think, you know, for me, like I can I can kind of Take the stance of like I went to school for CAD design. I I didn't go out and get an ME or anything like that. I never transferred to like a four year to actually get my mechanical engineering. So like for me, like if I've got to if I'm gonna like do any kind of, you know, anything in this field, like I kinda have to do it myself. And like you no know, no employer is gonna hire me with a with a certificate. So I wish I had done everything that I had done in school like about three years earlier and actually taken like high school CAD and stuff like that, but I didn't do that. So I kind of was behind a little bit. So for Elliot being in that position, for me, it's like, okay, well, as much as I can kind of show him now and kind of put him in the situation of like, here's how things like are actually working 
you know, from start to finish and actually making something, that's something that I never got, like, while I was in college. So, like, we never got to see any of, like, with with the exception of when I did CNC programming, I never got to see any of my projects actually become something. So this is something that hopefully, you know, if Elliot decides that he wants to stick with this and likes this, he has actual product development experience he can fall back on. So, Which is fantastic. Yeah, I mean, so many... So many kids miss that. Well, so many kids also don't care at 15 years old. So I, yeah. I think one of the things that I kind of want to like, because I mean, even you and I talking casually, Elliot, like I've never like just outright asked you, but um, every kid your age is probably like playing Fortnite. why they're not having to go to school right now <laughs> and everything else. And you are learning CAD design. So why? <laughs> like what what made that an attractive alternative to you as opposed to video games I that's just, uncommon I just don't have the attention span required for a video game like I'll do a match or something I'll be like alright that's fun time to move on so I started doing the CAD because I actually wanted to make a part for myself and have a friend print it for me and then I found another part I wanted and I made a couple new parts and eventually I just got my own printer because I got bored of him printing them for me which now you're getting to go through all the growing pains of getting that set up and everything too dude it's getting pretty dialed it's printing right now i like that you posted those progress photos you know like you weren't afraid to show like hey i had a mess up or something you know so you like showed this like progression of like this keychain you were working on where it was like a puddle of goo to a finished yeah. project you know so that was really cool thanks so what we want to do, you missed a lot of this, Elliot. We got talking and it, you know, we talk and uh, so <laughs> you missed some of the show. But anyways, what we kind of wanted to talk about tonight was RC myths and that was Trav's suggestion. And uh, I think it's a really good topic and we'll have a lot of things to talk about. And one of the good things is the fact that you are relatively new to the hobby so yeah. you're a good person to talk to about like what your expectations are as far as parts go and quality and things like that. So you're, th this will be a topic that is actually perfect for you because you can approach some of this from a semi newbie viewpoint, you know, bro, I'm a straight up newbie. No need to sugarcoat it. Not really. <laughs> You've learned a lot. So, I mean, yeah, I've, don't, I've don't sell yourself short. Years. Yeah, but look what you've accomplished in those two years, though, dude. I guess. Yeah, no, don't don't sell yourself short here. So um, I'm going to shut the door here in the shop really quick because it was hotter than blazes in here today, and now it's freezing cold because this is Washington. So I will be right back. But uh, while I'm doing that, um, why don't you guys figure out what myth you want to debunk first? that sound good? Yeah. Okay. Sure. So, Adam, you've been in the crawler thing a lot longer than I have, and even in the time that I've been in crawling, you've probably paid a lot more attention to it than I have. So, like, is there anything that's ever, like, stood out that has been kind of like a, a common misconception, you know, that, you know, people always, like, instantly try to do and, you know, for whatever reason thought it would work, wouldn't kind of thing, and they just, people always gravitated towards it? Since uh, the beginning of time, the number one thing everybody's always tried to do is get down low weight, whether that's weights, 
on the wheel inside the tire, uh, wheel weights, something that attaches to like the knuckle area or the wheels. Um, it that for some reason that's always been the go-to. Everybody's tried to do it. Everybody's tried to come up with a better way than another. And I think some of that has to stem from the comp crawling because back in the day when like Vanquish really didn't do too much stuff for scale and they were more geared towards comp, um, I don't know how many people listening will actually know this, but they had a set of wheels called the Six Shooter and they actually sold brass, they look like little bullets, that actually went in the holes so you can add weight. So like you could put one on each side, you could do a triangle shape, you could fill them all up, so that way you were creating enough weight that you needed to help keep the rig planted. Now, I think the reason why everybody, I guess, has forms an opinion or has their issues with it, it has to do with the fact that there's so many ways to go about it, and now, since crawling has evolved to where it's not just like comp crawling, the cars did not go fast. They were like a snail's pace. I think the best way to describe it is like a 55-turn motor geared at like really low was like the top speed that any of those you know would actually go. So having a lot of weight didn't really matter because people weren't trying to put these big KV brushless you know motors behind it and try to push it up a rock. Um, now fast forward. There's so many different, you know, viewpoints because some people are like, well, that's rolling mass. Now when you add a lot of horsepower, that's something that could blow up or it creates, you know, a wear, you know, a stress area on like your axle shafts and stuff because you're putting all this extra weight down there. Um, so I guess the best way to say it is I think down weight or low weight um, actually is a positive. I just think you need to know how to find the right amount and not overdo it. Yeah, it's super easy. I think it can be like super easy to overdo, right? I think a lot of people like I think I think unsprung weight is like a really good thing, you know, down on axles and if you have like wheel weights things like that. Like this was something that in the 8 scale world helped us a lot uh, was like hub weights because it made the car a lot more predictable in unpredictable terrain, right? The car felt a lot more level, it felt a lot more planted. But you know, it, it, people add like a ton of weight to the bottom thinking that's just going to stick to rock. Almost like, I guess the best way I can describe it is like if you take something like a, well, like a phone gimbal, right? If anyone's ever messed with a phone gimbal where if you sit there and you, you wiggle the arm, you know, a bunch and everything, the phone stays stays level, stays in, in place, right? It doesn't really move, but you have, you know, you're, you're rotating your arm everywhere. The, the base of it is rotating everywhere. And, you know, the best way I can describe that as this analogy is, like, the phone is the crawler and the, the everything else is the rocks, it's the terrain. And, and people think that, you know, it, it's basically just, it's going to pull gravity down on the rock the same way no matter what. And the thing is, like, that weight bias changes so much when you, you know, you hit, like, an incline or a, you know, a downhill or something like that. I think what a lot of people don't really think about, and this is, I think, something that's getting better, at least something that I'm noticing, is, like, the forward to back weight, like, the, the, the longitudinal weight bias really needs to bend, like, actually, like, complement the the unsprung weight you have on the bottom. If, like, you just add a bunch to the bottom, I don't, I don't really think that that's going to be too beneficial for you. 
but you don't like want all your weight up high either. So it's like, I I think after a while, maybe that's something that would in my in my experience, I guess this is something that you would just kind of have to figure out what works best for you. There's probably not like a universal answer, but that makes sense. Yeah, there's not really a universal answer. Um, I mean, it goes back to almost the same way as people adding a lot of weight. You know, like, do they like a lot of forward weight? Um, because, like, the very original SCX-10 kit that came out, like, way back in the day, like, my first kit, they actually put the battery in the bed area, and the motor was right in the center of the car, so the ass end of the car was always heavy. Right. Then people started saying, well, let's put the battery up front, so now we're having some weight in front of the front axle, so now, or just around the front axle, so that way when you're trying to crest over an obstacle, it's going to kind of keep the front end planted instead of letting it, you know, flip backwards and turtle. So I think that's gotten a lot better because, like, even with, like, the newer cars, like the Element, the SCX-10-3, um, they're starting to add... I guess the best way to say it is I've seen like a 60-40 split. So it's like they're still giving you a little more forward weight bias up front, but they're not giving you a totally empty rear. So that way it's going to still be predictable and you can still get it to go over whatever you're going over, crest whatever obstacle, but you're not going to flip backwards going over something and you're not going to somersault when you come down it. Right. Right. So, but I definitely got to say the weight has been like that, that one area everybody's always had in a, a debate or an opinion about it. Yeah, if that makes sense. Well, you know, it's kind of funny. So Travis and I, like when we went to Axial Fest in 2016, when we met you, Adam, um, we there was a lot of people that would come up to our booth and be like, Oh, I just broke this. I just broke this. I fried an ESC. I fried a motor, blah, blah, blah. And Trav and I are running like basically for the most part, stock axial rigs. And, you know, we've got weights in our wheels and everything else. And we go driving with this group of guys and all of a sudden it made sense why all these parts were breaking and stuff. Like guys are running like, 3S and 4S batteries with these ungodly crazy brushless systems and they'll get bound up and they're just pinning it, right? Like just, it, we're just looking at each other like, oh my God, dude, are you kidding me? Like this is, and, and that's how a lot of people drive those things, you know? And so when you take that into consideration, I get the whole thing with like, you know, breaking an axle or, you know, CV joint or whatever, but I just, I've never had that experience. Like, I just rarely break parts. I mean, you and I were talking about the Panhard mounts on the SCX-10-2 the other day, Adam, and, like, I made it two years before I broke one on the on our very first SCX-10-2, and you, it was some crazy amount of time with yours, too, wasn't it? Well, actually, I've never broken one on mine. Oh, really? Wow. Yeah, so, I mean, it's Which like... If you're nice to stuff and you just don't beat the crap out of it, like these cars hold up surprisingly well. But like if you drive like a lot of these guys do, then I would say, yeah, you know what? The rotating mass is like a bad thing for some people. You can't make that statement and be like, no, that's bad. That's a terrible idea. You shouldn't do that. You can't make that statement and just have it be a big blanket that you throw over the hobby because 
you know, I run beef patties and stuff on almost all of my rigs now have beef patties on them and I've never ever broken anything, you know, and it's cause I don't drive like a drunk monkey out there, you know? And it's, I, I think that, I don't know there, that I think that's a myth, you know, that people say that's a bad thing. Don't run a lot of rotating mass. Like it, it depends on how you drive. And if you're one of those dudes that your answer is just more throttle for everything, don't, don't put wheel weights on. It's as simple as that, but you can't generalize and say, no, that's a bad idea. Don't do it. Yeah. I think there's just a larger learning curve when it comes to cars. If you don't come from a different part in the hobby, like I know most racers will be more likely to go fix their car instead of throttling out or some boat guys are going to be super easy on the throttle. But if you're brand new into the hobby, you're not going to know some of that stuff. That That's true. And yes. guys are kind of men. I've noticed are really bad about this. Not women so much, but like men are impatient. Men don't want to admit when they're wrong. Men don't want to ask for help, you know? And so like, there's a lot of guys that probably don't understand stuff or don't get certain things, but just will not admit it, especially on Facebook or something, you know? So I don't know. Yeah. Uh, I think the funny thing is, um, it's like, it kind of goes with the saying, you know, when in doubt, throttle out. I think that it, a lot of people apply that terminology to the RC, which sometimes it can help. I mean, I do got to say I'm not super hard on my rigs, but, like, that black and gold JK has probably been one of my hardest-driven rigs. And being that it's got aluminum wheels, uh, aluminum axles, it's got a lot of down low weight. I've had that thing where it's hopping, and normally, like in the one to one, when you start hopping, you know something's gonna break, and it holds up. I mean, I think it's just knowing also when to quit. I mean, unfortunately, I think some people see these cars and they think they can accomplish anything with them, and it's like once <laughs> you see your tires get like stuck underneath a rock, or you just know it's never coming out of there, don't throttle it because you're going to snap something you know learn to okay that's it you know i'm just gonna have to go grab the car because picking it up and resetting you know is in my opinion a lot easier than going you know full throttle and then snap and you go oh well there goes my axle housing yeah, like, it's okay to pick up your car and reset it. Like, no one's going to, like, take away your man card or, like, put a skirt on you or something. Like, you know, if you're having trouble, just pick the thing up. Save yourself the headache, you know? Exactly. And save yourself some money at the same time. What's what's sure. another good... So, we got that. What's another good RC myth? I I can think of one. We can talk about it if we can't come up with some more. Um, go ahead. Because I, I can't think. Yeah, go for it. Yeah. Okay. So early on, I was told that you absolutely have to have an external BEC. Oh, that's a good one. Yeah. Not the case. And um, we had a guy in our club on the club page that was posting about how, oh, you, the first thing you got to you need an external BEC. You need this. You need that. And it all depends on the amp draw, the servo that you have, and like what voltage you're running it at and everything else. Um, you can bypass a BEC 
with a high volt servo and just power it off of like a JST connector or something if you want. You don't need to go buy a BEC. There's ways to wire around it. That's only going to work though if your servo can handle 8.2 volts. So if you have an expensive servo, you can do that and it'll work great for you. Um, I've had cheap servos that work relatively well. Um, one of the funny things, I, I want to say Hobbywing made it. When I had a HPI Venture, when that was sent here to us, that thing, for whatever reason, it had a great ESC in it. I want to say it was a Hobbywing, and it that thing didn't need an external BEC. I ran a Tekken 360 servo in it. I ran... I tried one of those red Amazon cheapies just for the hell of it. That thing never browned out, never cut out or anything. And the, e the ESC and it was able to handle that load. And that was something that was really impressive to me. Um, fast forward to my Wraith 1.9. I had gotten rid of the HPI Venture. And I took the Tekken T360 servo and stuck that in my 1.9 Wraith. Running off of the stock AE5 ESC and zero issues, never cut out, never browned out. And that, that didn't have an external servo or a external BEC. So that, that's a myth. Um, a lot of it too, depends on what you're driving. If you're doing a lot of serious crawling and getting bound up on stuff and really high traction surfaces and stuff, you might experience it cutting out. Um, it's kind of one of those things that if you try it and you notice that it's browning out, then yeah, go spend 20 bucks or more and get an external BEC. But for the dudes that I see, you know, driving on dirt trails and more just kind of trailing and crawling over the occasional routes or whatever, stuff like that, probably not necessary to have to buy an external BEC for that reason. You know, so a lot of it just depends on the, uh, depends on your ESC, depends on the servo you have and depends on the, uh, conditions that you drive in so no that that's not always a uh, mandatory thing for these cars some do really well without it well it's funny that you uh, say that because uh today actually since i was putting everything in and wiring up the, e uh, the esc and everything i was like oh i forgot to add my bc and i was like uh, and i typically just do it because a lot of my servos um can handle more volts and typically with some of the servos um more volts means more ounces of torque. So I was like, I guess I got to add one. But I said, you know what? Let me look at the servo real quick, um, and I'm going to see the specs, and I'm going to see if I really need it. Uh, and I was actually fairly surprised with the servo that I chose. Um, it's actually a first for me from MKS. It's the um, – I know it's a 9930. I just forget if it's an HV9930 or an HVL9930. But uh, anyways, it's because um, the one that I really wanted, the 550 that I normally run, was has been out of stock for a while. So I got this one, and long story short, it's it can handle 6 volts. Well, it's a 6 volt, 7.4, and 8.2. And each one has a different rating as far as uh, torque counts. Well, when I did the conversion, because on the box they give it to you in kilograms, it was like 39 kilograms or something like that. I did the conversion. It was like almost 500 ounces of torque, and that's at 6 volts. I said, that's plenty. I don't need the the BEC, because if I were to push it up to 8.2, I could get almost 600 ounces of torque, and that's beyond, that's beyond overkill on one nine rig. 
<laughs> Dude, that's unreal. Well, that's why I was actually shocked because when I got a hold of Thomas about this, because I even told him, I, I mean, this is where I guess my advice is, you know, sometimes reach out to people in these, um, uh, with these companies, like, you know, if it's Motor, you know, talk to your, you know, to Ty or somebody at Tekin or John at, at Homes, you know, if it's like Servos, you know, talk to the Servo companies, like I actually talk to, um, you know, Thomas, uh, the owner of, or CEO of MKS, and he actually told me, well, how about this? I want you to familiarize yourself, since you are a team driver, familiarize yourself with a few other different servos other than the ones you typically go to, so that way you can have a more rounded knowledge on what to use. And I was like, well, okay, because I said, I saw this one. I said, the price isn't much more than getting the HBL 550, so what do you think? The only thing is, which I know this is going to sound totally, you know, which maybe we can go over in one of these episodes. I personally did not know really what all the difference was between, uh, well, obviously I know what a brushless is, but I didn't know if there was a benefit or non-benefit of uh, brushless versus cordless mm-hmm. servos, and this is a cordless servo. Right. So I don't know if that has anything to do with the amount of torque and stuff they can get out of it, but... Uh, I think it might. I think you're right when you say that, and I'll, I'll explain it in a minute, but I think you're correct. Okay. But, um, yeah, because I just, like, I was, like, I was really impressed when I when I was looking at the stuff because, like I said, when I got it, and see, that's the funny thing, because MKS, um, I wouldn't say they cater to, but they got their start in European, you know, planes and drones and helicopters. I guess they measure servos based off of um, kilograms. So when when I first look at it, you're just kind of like, all right, well, I don't understand what the kilograms are. Like, that doesn't, you know... They've gotten better, and on their website, they actually have a conversion. They'll tell you what it is converted to um, uh, ounces. Um, but on the box, it just had the kilograms. So I was like, oh, okay, I'm going to have to look this up. But actually, I just pulled this up right now. Um, it's the HV9930, and like I said, 6 volts, 7.4, 8.4. At 6 volts, it's... 436 ounces, it's 7.4, it's 538, and at 8.4, it's 597. Good God. It's a monster of a servo, and it's a high-voltage cordless. So I said, you know what? I'm going to try running it based uh, off the you know, the receiver slash uh, ESC, and I guess I'm kind of cheating because since I am using a um, Castle Mamba X, that has an internal BC, which I have regulated at 6 volts. I could bump it up higher if I want, but I'm just leaving it at the 6. If I, if I see any issues with brownouts or anything, I'll address it then, but until then, I'm just going to leave it and see how it runs. So that has an adjustable BEC in that Castle ESC, correct. Yeah, see, Tekin's had that for a while now, and like the RX4, you can toggle back and forth in there uh, with Hotwire and change it from six to seven point four. Um, the RX4 is another ESC that I've never had to use a BEC with either. 
because I mean, and it's not like it's super high amperage. I forget what the amperage is. It's like, I don't know, eight, 10 amps, something like that. Like I, I want to say the castle external BECs are a 10 amp. And in most cases that's fine. Um, I've so Protex like top of the line servo is the, uh, TBL 360 is that what it is let me look really quick here it always trips me up because I've been using some of Travis's uh, HBL 599s and so I get the the model of it wrong I can see that yeah is that their is that their waterproof one yeah it's their waterproof ridiculous one um, maybe it is TBL Sorry, I'm looking this up really quick. I promise that I'm going somewhere. Okay, yeah, it is. Uh, Protec 170 TBL. Um, it is a $160 servo, but it's beastly. And our A-Main slash Protec team, um, when this servo came out, they were wanting us basically to just see if it would hold up to abuse. They said, you know, hey, try it dump a bunch of voltage to it we will warranty it if something happens but we want to see what these things do out in the field and if you guys can kill them or not one of the things that guys were doing now i have no idea what the torque rating was on it but they were running 11.4 volts off of a three cell directly to it and oh, it man. would get warm but they didn't cook it but that's what they wanted us to do though okay so uh at six volts it's 600 ounces of torque at 7.4, it's 650 ounces of torque. And guys were throwing 11 plus volts into that thing, and it didn't die. And, of course, in that situation, you know, they're bypassing the BEC, and they're, or, uh, excuse me, they're um, bypassing the receiver, and they're powering this thing straight th off the battery leads. You know, they either went to the posts on the ESC, or they soldered a JST connector to the Deans. But the other day I had a guy ask, you know, like, Hey, what's a good servo? You know what? You know, it's not going to break the bank. And if this thing had all metal gears, there is one plastic gear and I've ruined that once. I didn't throw a fuss about it or anything because I, I think the replacement gears are under 10 bucks for these things. But I recommended to the guy, the eco power WP 120 T and the reason why, and this is going back to what you said about coreless atom, for mm. some reason, it, it's the main case is aluminum, but the top cap to the case is plastic, and so the tabs are plastic too. Part, that keeps the cost down. So, you know, it's once you start going to an all aluminum case, you start getting north of 100 bucks with most brands. So, why I like this servo so much, and it is coreless, like the one you're talking about. It's 337 ounces of torque at 6 volts and 400 at 7.4. Most situations, that would be a perfect servo for most people. It's that should be plenty. Like a yeah, I mean, 400 ounces for, for the average dude, I think that is like the ultimate RTR servo upgrade is going with one of these. And it's a cordless motor like what Adam's new servo is, and that's... I, I believe I need to ask somebody that knows, um, but I believe that's why they're getting some of these torque numbers out of these things um, because it that's, that's a lot at pretty low voltage. I mean, 
I don't know. I feel like that's pretty impressive. But uh, this thing retails at 69 bucks. you know? So if it wasn't for that plastic mid-gear, which, again, that's plastic because it's designed to fail instead of breaking important stuff in it, you know? There needs to be a weak, a weak link, and that's probably a good segue for us to move into uh, replace perfect next myth. Yeah, exactly. That's a good segue into the next thing about, uh, that we can talk about myth wise is, um, upgrading everything. everything. Yeah. Making everything on your car metal. So we can talk about that, but anyways, yeah. So, you know, a great servo for the money and for the average dude that that's plenty, you know, and yeah, it does have a plastic gear and I broke one, but I'm glad that it did because it would have damaged something else. And I would have been out 60 bucks instead of, you know, $12. So, um, yeah, we can go right into from there, uh, engineered, um, weak links and rigs so that small things fail and big things don't. So Trav, that's probably perfect for you. Well, I mean, I, I guess the opening point is that the the people that design these cars, believe it or not, are pretty smart individuals. They have a pretty decent concept of what they're doing. So this I think this, this kind of brings us back to the other point of like, you know, let's not try and outsmart the engineer. They, you know, they probably had a better grasp on this than you do right now. Like there's a reason it is the way it is. And... I don't know. This it's is almost a, like they do it for a living. Yeah, and it's weird. <laughs> it's weird. Like they almost get paid for. It, like it's their day job, right? What? It's a really strange concept. It's 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 kind of a hard one though to talk about at the same time because there's like there's so many different angles. I mean, it's one thing, a, a really good point that is you know should be made about this is that kits, it, it like like if if they wanted to come out with like the perfect car kit, right? You know, they wanted. To, the, the nicest of everything on there, right? You know, we had metal balls everywhere. We had, um, you know, we had titanium top screws. We had Kashima coated shocks, all this kind of things. Like we could, you, people, someone could absolutely come out with a car like that and it would be ridiculously expensive. The thing is, is like when people do these, like there's, there's a certain, like there's a certain price point that they're trying to target, you know, like, I mean, that's like, it's not the first thing to think about, but they have an idea of where they want to be, right? It has to be realistic for people. So they're going to come up with this big conceptual design of like the, the overall geometry of this truck. Okay. And that is what you end up with in all these kits. And then after that, there are compromises that have to be made in certain areas because otherwise you have cost issues. Yeah, you're looking at VS410 prices. You're looking at VS410 pricing because what happens when someone takes a truck to the nines, well, the customer pays for it. That's And that's kind of the, the problem. So that's why you see things like plastic balls. You know, that's a great example. That's like the hot issue right now, right? So that, that's why you see those things. However, especially in the scale world, like there's a big aftermarket support in just about anything, but the overall, you know, the overall truck itself, I mean, is kind of designed to suit one purpose. You can do a lot of things to modify that. I mean, our EPX kit is a perfect example of this. But it, all in all, 
there's not really and any of the trucks that are out now that to my knowledge that I can think of there's not really anything that is like a major design flaw in it even it's like there's a reason for that right there's nothing that's just like this is a huge issue this can't stop failing the truck doesn't work because of this you don't see things like that because of of just product development stages you know these companies are not going to release something that just sucks Right. Yeah. So, exactly. That, that's kind of what it just come down to. I mean, like, yeah, you can go through. You can try and bulletproof everything. You know, you can throw metal axles underneath all of your cars, and you can put, you know, brass, compl- you know, all over the thing. You can replace every plastic part with aluminum and and this and that. Like, you can do all of those things, but you're just going to break different parts, right? You're going to change your stress points, and it's going to crawl. Not nearly as well, right? And that, oh, oh, sorry. Go ahead. No, I was just saying. So, like, it's like it's one of those things where, like, this kind of brings us back to like it's a it's a balancing act of like what is it like what is it really you know worth to you? Like for me, like for me, for example, like this is a personal this is a personal preference. I do not represent the opinions of anyone on the show, but I think metal axle or not metal axles, but metal axle housings. I think they're pointless. Right I, to me, that is not a change that I would ever make on one of my cars. It's just it's not something that I think of. I don't see the point. Right. right. Well, it's all give and take, and that's why. Well, yeah, exactly. If the thing is, is like, it, everything <laughs> you change on one of these cars, okay, it's just like geometry. Well, in, in in many ways, if you change the actual part composition, you end up with the same issue of every action you take, there is a reaction somewhere down the line. Everything cascades. There's not one thing that you change and suddenly it's, you know, something is completely fixed. Like that means something changed and something else is going to suffer as a result. Like everything is a balance. There's no no such thing as a perfectly set up car. Believe me, I've tried. So when you change, you know, things like geometries, right, there are things that are definitely going to feel better most of the time it is to suit a certain goal well if you're just changing things like axle housings and you're just trying to make your axle housing bulletproof for whatever reason you might have well you're not going to get a performance advantage right right you might get a durability advantage you might might get a durability advantage from that but you're not going to get a performance advantage all right that is the right. price you pay that is that is what you remember, like, uh, I, I think when we first got into this, this would be around 2015, 2016, where it was kind of the hot thing where, like, the cheap, the cheap, like, upgrade that everyone wanted to do was, like, for people who, like, were getting into it that were kind of new, was, like, they wanted to completely deck their car out and everything that Intigi made. Any, yeah, that was Intigi really aluminum, big. blue, or purple anodized part, they wanted to put that on their car. And we're seeing that again with Samix. The only difference is Samix stuff is actually good. You know, it's like quality stuff. It's yeah, yeah, rel- yeah. relatively look, expensive. Yeah, relatively expensive. But, I mean, you're you're paying for, I mean, some serious, like, thought that at least went into a decent design aesthetic. Yeah. It's you look at it, and it doesn't feel like you're paying for garbage. But, it, it to me, it doesn't – It to me, I see those things and, like, yeah, they look cool. But, like, I'm a performance guy. I want it to perform. Right, so for me, really, the thing that I'm going to do to get it as close to performance advantage as possible is, unless I'm going to do something like a geometry kit, 
I'm probably going to leave most of the truck the same as far as any hop-ups. I'm like stock is the fine the way it is because at that point geometry is going to get me so much closer to where I want to go. And this is potentially a pretty mind-blowing point for some people, but if your truck is dialed in, you have a performance setup on it that works really well, you're probably going to drive it a lot better and you're not going to put yourself in as many situations where you could potentially have durability issues. Right. So if you do your homework on what works as far as a setup goes, make the truck work for the way you drive it. it it's in part. I mean, you still gotta, you still have to drive the thing no matter what. But there are there are ways that you can directly impact how often you are replacing some parts or the, the, the durability issues you have with some parts depending on the way you drive it. Oh yeah, absolutely. And like bef before we started talking, when we, uh, before we started recording tonight, we were talking about how like basically everything that you do is give and take, like you can upgrade to something, but you, like you're going to get an improvement in one place and there's going to be something you're sacrificing on the other end of it. And that's just physics. It's just life. That's just how it is. Like there is always going to be a negative to the positive that you're making. And so, for example, circling back to the aluminum axles. Yes, they're going to be more durable. Uh, you are going to have some wear points on them where your links and stuff fasten that with having aluminum machine tabs and stuff, eventually they might start to wallow out and become ovaled just after you've had a steel screw backing, you know, back and forth rubbing against it every time the suspension cycles. So, you know, it could possibly clap out a little bit sooner. But the big thing with an aluminum axle is, yes, it looks rad. Yes, there's scale like in, a, in when you, you know, if we look at like Vanquish, you know, they're very, very scale looking. Um, the flip side to going to us with a set of Vanquish axles is aluminum is one of the softest metals out there. It's very, very lightweight though, but it is going to get hung up on rocks way more than what a plastic axle is going to do. Plastic slides across rocks better than aluminum. That is, that is an inarguable fact. You know, you, you cannot debate that plastic will slide across rock better than aluminum. So you have somebody in, and I see a lot of genius in this product and I don't think they get the recognition that they should, but SSDs axles having a plastic pumpkin, you've got the lowest point of the axle being made out of plastic. So the part that's going to come, come into contact with stuff first is a nice, soft, slippery plastic. And then you've got axle tubes that are made out of metal for durability and you know strength so really like you're getting the best of both worlds with the diamond pro housing that ssd has and then also their what is it the d44 is that their what do they call the axle you just got adam um i don't think they called it the d44 i think they just called it the because they had the d60 they had like a d60 to replace the old school scx 10 axle yeah, which I have, like, multiple sets of those. Yeah, which those are rad. Those are all plastic. But, I mean, like, all the ones for the AR44 and newer, those have metal tubes that plug into the pumpkin and then are held in place with some screws. 
genius product, you know, like that, that basically takes care of everybody's gripes. You know, it's not going to hang up as bad as something with aluminum pumpkin. So that to me, that's brilliant. Now, the big thing with element that I've seen is that guys complain about the plastic being flexible. They think, you know, it's too soft. And one of the things that you see is the pan hard mount on the element with the stock plastic, it moves quite a bit. It almost acts like a servo saver in a sense. Um, there's some flex there. And so you don't get quite as accurate steering or as much steering as you could with a more rigid pan hard mount. So everybody is throwing these god-awful looking Samix shock towers on these things. And they're, you know, big machined aluminum pieces with all these multiple mounting holes and stuff like that. So, yes, you have fixed the pan hard mount flexing now because it's fixed and it's metal. You know, it's going to be more stationary. But on the back end of that, you have now added a bunch of weight up tall versus having the plastic shock towers that were there to begin with. So you're sacrificing your weight bias of your car and having maintaining a low center of gravity, you're sacrificing that by throwing these big aluminum shock towers on, you know, so it's like, well, rad, you, you know, your pan hard isn't moving anymore, but now you've got, you've added to the top heaviness of the rig. Um, brass is all the craze right now. And we're seeing guys put like in, I, it kind of bums me out to see this happen, but like Samix makes brass bumper mounts. Like, I cannot think of a worse part to make out of brass than your bumper mounts. They make them front and rear. Like, I get the weight, the idea behind it, but you're putting it, it's all sprung weight, and it's really high up. And that's a horrible, horrible thing to do if you're trying to get your car to perform well. It's not going to keep you anchored down to the ground like you think it is because it's brass, and brass is magical, and it fixes everything nowadays. Um, It... You know, the flip side is you've got this top heavy rig now. And so you're, you know, cranking down your preload to make up for the lack of ride height, you know, because now the brass is heavy and your rig's squatting down more now because you've got all that weight that's sprung. And so the shock, your shock springs are taking up that extra weight. So now you're cranking them down and now your suspension's doing funny things and not what you want it to do. So, I mean, there's, there's, there's a downside to every single thing you do and, I wanted to try and not talk about our kit just because, but one of the things that Trav and I did with the EPX kit is there's a lot of guys out there that have big, ugly metal laser cut steel shock tabs that they're putting on these things. We did ours out of carbon fiber and each tab only weighs one gram. So we, you know, this is a performance kit. It's made to, you know, make these cars work really, really well. And yeah, we could have gone with metal and it probably would have been cheaper to just have some stamped steel or, you know, laser cut steel and have those for shock tabs. But when you really start thinking about performance gains and you understand the fact that, you know, you, it's a give and take situation with any modification that you do to these cars, one of the ways to keep that weight down low is make them out of carbon fiber. And like, I don't know if you know what a gram, how much a gram weighs, but it is nothing like these things are feather lightweight. And we chose to make the link tabs for the our link risers that are on these. We went with billet aluminum. 
because number one, we needed to have a step so that we don't lose that lateral geometry. Because if you throw the laser cut steel link tabs on them, you've now moved your shocks, or excuse me, you've now moved your upper links outward more than where they were from the factory position. And there's a reason why they were there from the factory, and that's because the thing works better that way. It's, you know, you don't have any weird binding issues and stuff like that. So our our tabs maintain that same vertical plane is where they bolted on stock. So we didn't change that. We made them out of aluminum versus steel because these are bigger, they're more robust. Can't make them out of steel because we don't get that offset now, and they're going to be heavier. So there's a lot of thought that goes into the way these things are designed. Like, I mean, I know the amount of hours Travis put into this kit and listening to Adam talk about his SCX 10 three and like the fact that the oil pan is even notched for the pan hard and stuff. Like I cannot be like, I can't even imagine the amount of hours that went into drawing the SCX 10 three. I mean, it was probably a year or more process. I bet. I mean, oh, they, yeah, I mean, like when, cause I've, I've spent some time watching Travis work in like SolidWorks and stuff like that. We do team viewer and I can, it's really good because we kind of just do like a teleconference and we put our phones on, um, whatever the hell it is on messenger or whatever or we do that. And then we, you know, can talk and then we do team viewer so I can watch what he's doing. And I've like watched him full on draw parts and like, and it takes a really long time. So I can only imagine the hours that goes into these things. And it's like, especially with that axial rig, like they thought of everything. I mean, like I, I just, I can't imagine the amount of time that they it's, sunk it's into that. Little things. Like if you look at our kit, you look at four shock tabs and two link tabs and you think like, well, it's just, you know, it's a, it's a it's a polygon with some holes. Like at first glance, it kind of all it looks like, but you got oh, so much more. Out. Yeah, you got to start thinking about okay, well, you know, you had to choose a distance between the holes. You had to choose a distance from one end of the part to the other, and then you had to choose a distance for you know the radius offset, and then you had to you know figure out what was going to be the flush offset to make sure that I had the same lateral geometry on the truck, so that way it sits over the frame rails okay, how much material do I need to bridge these two halves to where this thing's not going to snap off, right? Like these are little little tiny details that sometimes take longer to sort out than maybe even drawing like the whole of the part itself. And that's that's what takes so long for these things. Like, you know, in, in the discussion that we had back like when I was a guest on here where we were talking about like stuff we had in the pipeline at the time, we're like, I like a lot of people bought a 3D printer Right, and I kind of had this idea where I was like, you know, I, I'm I'm going to make 3D printed stuff. It's going to be cool. That means I can make anything now, and I can you know contribute to scale builds and stuff like that. And I got into CAD, and I started thinking. I was like, okay, well, I could do what almost everyone else is and make uh, jacks and gas cans, right? And not a knock on the people who do that. That's their thing. But like, look, I can't I can't sit here and convince any of you why my gas can is better than someone else's, right? I can't do that. Like, I mean, I could, but I'd be lying, right? Sure. There's no reason. It's the same. Or I can, you know, take something like this, take my sweet time on it, you know, something, even those tiny little parts. I mean, that, that was close to six months of development time. So for me, like, what we came out with, what we saw work, 
to me like proved that like that time was worth it and I'm like look if we're going to put something out like it's going to be worth the time because it takes a long time I mean Elliot's getting his feet wet in this thing and he knows there's people who listen to this podcast that that might even do this as a day job and they know so it's a really tricky thing like it's it's just it's something you kind of have to have ultimate patience for and so you have to start thinking about you know where you can have those same compromises, but it's the same thing. Why did I do the tabs out of carbon fiber and not steel or aluminum, right? Yeah, yeah that, well, that, those are kind of the things that like you got to think about, and sometimes those can be decisions that take days at a time to figure out. Oh yeah, I mean, you and I went back and forth talking so much about this, and like for somebody, and what's really crazy is we haven't had any trolls or anything yet, and nobody like talking any crap about it. When you look at the shock tabs at first, your first impression is, well, there's only five holes. You know, like you look at like a Samix or one of these other brands of their shock towers. It's this big piece of aluminum that has 10 different mounting holes on it. Right. You know, all, yeah. and, and that's all more material and more weight that you're going to have. So the reason why we went with carbon fiber and there's only five holes. Well, the shape that we have of these like they're kind of a teardrop shape almost um, the shape of them. We were able to keep these small and not have a lot of mass by making it to where you can just flip them upside down. And now you've gained more holes in a different spot with them being offset like this. So you've got a part that weighs one gram made out of carbon fiber. There's not a lot of material there when you look at it, but you've actually got the same mounting choices of, as what you would have over an aluminum one that has all that mass and that weight up high. And so there's like lots of little details that go into this stuff. And that's why it doesn't happen overnight. And that's why the engineers at Axial and at Team Associated spend hours and hours and hours. And it's like, I, I have a great appreciation for that because we had to do the same thing too. We had to do testing and stuff. And one of the cool things about 3D printing is we were able to prototype the entire kit 3d printed drive it see how it did versus paying for machine setup and material and everything else i mean back in the day before 3d printers we would have had to have finished products machined and made for us just to test just to try and bolt up this if we had to do that for this for this it would have been thousands I it would I don't know if it would have been thousands because this was like something I was looking into, but it at least would have been double what we what we did invest into it. Yeah, because I mean that that's just it. Like we would have had to have aluminum machined shock tabs just for proof of concept, you know? Exactly. And being able to do it with a three D printer is like it's huge, and that's one thing that's so excited for me about Elliot getting one is now he can go through that whole process. If he has one of those like light bulb moments where, Oh, Hey, we should do this. He can get proof of concept for relatively low cost versus right. what you would have to have done back in the old days. I mean, this our EPX kit would have been very, very expensive, but you know, like with going this route, it was faster. We weren't on somebody else's timeline for turnaround at the machine shop and stuff. And you know, every, like we, we tried to think of everything, you know, and that the whole reason I'm even carrying on about this and talking a little bit longer than I should is the fact that circling back to not trying to outsmart the engineers that build this stuff, you know, look for ways you can improve it, but don't try and reinvent the wheel. And that's something that we decided to do. You know, we took existing ideas and stuff like that and worked out 
ways to make them better. For example, the shock tabs with being able to flip them to get more mounting holes. You know, if you flip them upside down from where I have them mounted up on my truck right now, you can actually get an even lower ride height if you wanted to. So there's lots of things that, you know, people think of and stuff like this. And it's not always good to just run out and buy, you know, the first metal parts, you know, and just get everything you know metal right off the bat and it's not going to break and stuff because you're going to have some issues down the road yeah my microphone's falling off i'm having to reclamp it sorry <laughs> can i can i circle back to an earlier topic sure remember when you said that uh most people opt for those aluminum shock towers i just remembered associated makes hard plastic ones but you yeah. barely see them i think what boils down to is people don't feel like it's an upgrade to replace with more plastic they want the metal one to feel like it's an upgrade right which oh this is something oh so going along that same lines so yeah you know our first experience and yours too elliot with their stuff was having the hard plastic available for the race cars okay you know it's right in, and we do that as a tuning option because you can have a hard plastic arm that's going to flex less than a softer plastic so that was one of the reasons why we went with those. Um, now, associated, what they've done is they've taken and looked at, you know, people complaining about, you know, the black plastic that comes on is too flexible and they don't like it. What they've done now is they're from their kits now forward, all of the plastic that comes on it is the hard plastic. It's black now instead of gray, just for aesthetic purposes, but they've listened to what everybody said and now the cars come factory with the hard plastic and they have a new harder plastic that is available now as an upgrade through them. So for me, you know, I wouldn't go and buy aluminum shock towers or anything. I'm going to buy the new associated ones that are even harder than the hard version that they had before. You know, and so it's it's thinking like that and, you know, OK, let's improve it, you know, and people don't give the credit where it's due because it's saving weight. You know, the reason why they offered a hard plastic to begin with on a crawler is you can go stiffer without going to aluminum and it's going to save weight, you know, so it's not it's not a design flaw. It's not somebody being cheap because they put plastic on it. It's how it is. And one of the things that everybody complains about, well, not everybody, but a lot of people complain about is there's a lot of chassis flex on this. Why is that bad? Like, why does, why are people bothered by having chassis flex? Real cars have it. If you drive a truck off road and stuff, you can see the bed moving independently from the cab and having that torsional flex in the, in the frame. So why is it bad on an RC car all of a sudden? Too rigid and it breaks. Well, that, but it's also, you want to have some engineered flex in there so that there's some give to it. You know, you get into certain situations and you've maxed out your suspension, either maximum as far as like bottomed out or drooped down. You know, you reach that point and you could be on terrain where your car's getting twisted up. If your chassis is too rigid, it's not going to conform to those imperfections in the ground and twist up and still maintain tire contact. You're going to start lifting wheels and things like that and not having contact with the ground anymore. So that's one of the things that, 
you know, every, that's another myth is that, you know, oh, chassis flex is bad. It's not. It's a good idea. And that's why I've never complained about it. You know, like, it's not a bad thing. I haven't noticed that affecting the lines that I drive or anything I've done at all. I mean, is that, is that even, like, something that's crossed your mind, Adam, with your cars? Have you ever even, like, given a shit about chassis flex? Um, not really, honestly. Um, mainly because I guess it it doesn't really ever – I've never seen, like, an area where I'm like, okay, I'm on the trail – I'm flexing over this rock, and that chassis flex just totally, you know, messed up my whole line. I've never seen it. I yes, I have seen where you take a hard tumble, and maybe if your chassis is not as rigid as it should be, it'll get tweaked, it'll get bent. You gotta like straighten it out. I've seen that happen, and I've had a couple chassis that have taken a, a tumble where they've kind of tweaked a smidge, not yeah, enough to have to worry about it, but. It's never crossed my mind to say, oh, yeah, I need to have this thing as rigid as possible. Yeah, I've never been out on the rocks and thought, you know, man, I really wish my chassis was stiffer right now. I'd be able to get up that. You know what I mean? Like, it's like such a goofy, weird complaint. So I think that chassis flex being a bad thing, that is a myth debunked. (laughs) I think that that's a foolish thing to complain about, especially when you see it in the one-to-one world. They're engineered that way, you know? Like, there's only a certain number of cross braces and stuff on a rig that, you know, they're there so that there'll be some give. Otherwise, things are going to break or they're going to shear off. I mean, that's just how it is. I mean, it's not necessarily a bad thing. Yeah, exactly. I just wanted to touch on one final thing. Um, Just because I know we're getting kind of long. I know we're getting, you know, super excited. God, we are. Yeah, sorry. Um. (laughs) No, the only thing I wanted to say about the whole, you know, over, I guess, compensating, engineering, all that stuff, um, like with, like we've always talked about with the OG SEX10, um, there was a lot of like you had to make it a perform. You had to move the battery. You had to do all this stuff because when it came in its, you know, I guess you could say raw form, it wasn't, I guess, you know, super adequate to you know, what you what it could be, like what the cars are today. It wasn't up to that par. So I think what happened was people were, I don't know if you'd say they were more creative or they were more, you know, there's so much stuff going on that people were constantly trying to come up with ways to make it better. Whereas I think now what's happening is you get this car that's pretty much ready to go out of the box, don't have to do anything to it, but they're still having that mentality of, I need to do something to this to make it work better. And it's like, well, what if it already does work better? Because like, you know, the original SCX 10, when one of the common mods, if you did it like, cause there were some people, um, that just do not like slipper clutches. They, you know, right when they're trying to get over something, the clutch starts slipping. So they don't have enough torque or, and you know, they're getting, and they're spinning, so they can't, you know, get over what they need to get over. So a lot of people started doing slipper eliminators, which is fine. But the problem I was seeing was people were like, I'm going to do the slipper eliminator, and I'm going to run an aluminum spur gear. Spur, right. I was just going <laughs> to say that. <laughs> and it's like, okay, you've made that thing so bulletproof now. Where's the next failure? And if you, like, you didn't address the drive shafts, that's what was going to blow up. Or all else fails, 
you get like a tire wadded up underneath something, you're going to blow up the axle. So, I mean, it's like you have to leave some sort of a failure point so that way it's easier to fix later than having to like rebuild the whole rig because you overdid it. Um, I mean, it's just something that like we see. So I think that's kind of like what's carried over to a sense. Like people are always like, you know, they want to improve, which like I said, there's nothing wrong with wanting to improve, but I think it's some sort of like, you know, we kind of touch on validation. They come up with an idea. They're so happy. They want everyone else to kind of see it. And sometimes it's a flop. Sometimes it's positive. And I think that's really where everything's going right now. Yeah. I'm, I'm glad you brought up the spur thing because I forgot to mention that before. Cause it's like, yeah, now you've got no give. You're just going to start breaking parts. Like I do not see a single advantage to running a slipper eliminator and a metal spur gear. Like all metal isn't a good thing. You know, I would much rather end up having to replace a spur gear than, you know, something more costly and vital. There, there was one last thing that I wanted to bring up, and then we can get going here. Sorry that this turned into a long one, everybody. But I see the term full droop all the time. Um, I get that people want to have low ride height and stuff. I know why they're doing it. It's not the best option in every in- instance, but... This is probably going to upset some people, but full droop, that's not even a thing. Um, In the real world with automotive and motorcycles and stuff, um, full droop is when your shocks have reached their limit of down travel. That is droop. When your shock is bottomed out and your car is sitting on the bench or on the ground, when it's bottomed out like that and all you have now is down travel, that's not full droop. That's full bump. So when your suspension is bottomed out, you are on the bump stops, which is what real cars have. That is called full bump. You guys that are calling it full droop, it's actually full bump is what you're doing. Full droop, like I said, is when you have maxed out your down travel of your shock and reached its mechanical limit of moving downward. So... Full droop isn't a thing in the RC world. It's it's that's the wrong word for it. That's not even what it really is. And I think that there's a lot of people thrown in that term around that don't understand. You know, obviously, I think so. Um, yeah. So just a little one to one background for you guys. You're really running full bump. You're bottomed out on the bump. I guess so full bump. I guess where I will interject saying that I think the term might have. I think the idea is there it's the way the execution of the term got muddy because yeah, it's backwards <laughs> basically because yes your suspension is drooping out it's like you know it's falling out so that's why they call it droop so i think that's where the term came from yeah yeah no i i, I can see that but it's just if you talk about like full droop or something and you're talking to a guy that builds trophy trucks or something He's going to look at you like, what in the hell are you talking about? That's not even a thing. It's it's full droop is limit of your travel. Full bump is when the shock's all the way compressed. So depending on how you want to label your car as it sits, if it's sitting on the bench and you went with a full droop setup, well, no, it's bottomed out. Depending on the terrain you're going and how far, how much down travel you have, 
that is your group, you know, and that's never a constant because it depends on the, you know, the ground and the deformities in it and stuff that you're driving over. So it's never fully drooped out unless it's in both of your hands and you're picking it up off the ground. Like it, it's not a thing, you know, that's the only sure. time it's completely drooped. So that was just one more myth I wanted to throw out there. Um, I don't see anybody changing their description of suspension cycling at all because we talked about it on this episode, but it's a little bit of knowledge for you guys if you want to uh, learn something new. So anyways, um, yeah, we need to get wrapped up here. And Anything else, you guys, before we get going? Um, no, I'm, I'm fresh out of stuff. Elliot, I'm thank good. you for joining us. As always, thank you for it was having a pleasure. Me. So, yeah, hopefully we can uh, check in with our intern periodically and see how he's doing and new parts and what he's enjoying about scale and stuff like that and yeah totally i just want to say one last thing and i waited all the way to the end to do this just because it is corny as hell but i wanted to say it since we have the intern on the sh- on the <laughs> show every time you bring him up i, I always think of et <laughs> oh my god! Do you know how many times I've heard that? Oh really? <laughs> I'm sorry, I had to do it. I had to do it. <laughs> would you even know what ET is if it wasn't for your name being Elliot? Would you even? Yes, know? I would. Okay, I don't. I I saw it once when I was little and never watched it again, so I wasn't sure if it was <laughs> so old that it was even something you would even know about. I mean, I I've never cared enough to watch it, but I definitely know about it. Yeah. Makes sense. All right. Well, everybody, thank you so much for joining us. I'm sorry we ran a little bit over, but hopefully you actually learned something this time instead of just listening to us be nerds and geeking out over, you know, a new scale shovel or something that was released. So (laughs) anyhow, there you go. We'll see you next week. All right. Thanks, everybody.